Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. This week, we're going to continue talking about some of the common mistakes people make when they're doing their estate planning, their end-of-life planning. And I think that you'll find these not only useful, but I think you'll find them very practical. So we suggest that you grab a pen and paper and maybe make some notes. And the good news is other people have already made these mistakes, so you don't have to. That's the wonderful thing about staying informed about That's other exactly people's right. problems. So uh, where shall we start, Susan? Well, okay. So I was thinking about a particular event where we're going to be traveling with family members. And so all of us are together. We're taking a great family trip. But what happens if the unexpected occurs? And tragically, what if maybe all or most of my family and my beneficiaries are injured or killed all at the same time what types of things do we need to have in place in that situation yeah with the law this is called a uh, common disaster meaning that common in the sense that a number of people are involved and these are often key people key people in your documents so you've probably those of you who've been listening to this show for very long i'm sure you've done all these things absolutely you have in place your power of attorney your durable power of attorney uh, living will, advanced care directive, whatever it is. You also have a trust, probably. You have a will and various other things. Well, you've named certain key people in each of those documents, whether it's a trustee, whether it's an agent as it pertains to powers of attorney, uh, whether it's a personal representative, guardians, etc. Well, interestingly, those almost always tend to be people who are very close to you. Mm-hmm. And those are people who are most likely also to be the ones with whom you travel. Mm-hmm. So it's not at all unusual for there to be a a common mishap in which several people traveling together are, uh, it, it's a fatal accident, mm-hmm. we'll say. Or maybe they're just totally incapacitated, those that survive. That's a problem because there's a good chance that the key figures you've named in your estate planning were traveling with you. That's not at all unusual because oh, these sure. are the people we're closest to, we know and trust. Holidays coming, that kind of thing. So what happens then? Well, it means that all that wonderful planning you did for which you paid a lawyer probably a substantial amount of money, it means that it's not kicking in because someone else ends up deciding after all. Who's going to be making these decisions for you? So there's an easy fix to this. And and that fix is to simply name a contingent agent with a durable power of attorney, name a contingent trustee, and often contingent trustees, meaning several. More than one. More than one. Mm -hmm. And naming contingent personal representatives, um, uh, a conservator, a guardian, those people who are important figures in your planning whenever you're thinking about end of life and, 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 and after death. So I'm suggesting that you look at your documents, see that you've named at least one other person. I would suggest you even name two because if you're planning as you should be, probably 
much earlier in life than you anticipate actually needing this stuff, then a lot of time's going to go by, maybe decades. Mm -hmm. And over that period of time, things change. So don't assume that the person that you've identified is going to be in a position to do those things that far down the road. So it's good to name not just one alternative, but two alternative successors as to each of these key positions in your estate planning. Well, and so that kind of leads me to the next question is let's say you have another person, but one of your um, trustees has passed away. I mean, it's 10 years down the road. You still need to go through and take the extra steps to get that all taken place or taken care of and squared away before you do something else, before something else happens. Yes, and and the the very uh, thing that you wanted to avoid uh, was going to court, but that's what happens whenever you have named a trustee and you don't have a successor trustee or you've named a successor trustee that can't take uh, take control for whatever reason. In that case, someone ends up going to court. It may be the beneficiary that brings the action. Uh, it could be various interested parties who have the standing to bring this action. Uh, but the point is you end up in court. Now, that's better than not having the trust, let me hurry to add. Uh, that's a lesser evil in my judgment than not having the trust at all. But still, it is an evil in the sense that it's a lot of trouble and it, and it can be expensive. So I'm suggesting that you name a couple of alternatives in your successor trustees. And there's even a, a device called a trust protector that you can choose to name in the state of Missouri in many states. And a trust protector is kind of a third party that floats out there that has the ability to come in and solve these problems. You give them authority. They're not the person running the trust, so you're not imposing on their time. This is somebody that, that you can ask to simply sit out there and when called upon to come in and solve these problems. They'd have the authority to do it, just as a judge might as to many of these issues. So trust protectors are marvelous. They can save you a lot of money. I suggest that that all of you consider having a trust protector named in your trust. Now, is that a company you would contract with and pay a monthly fee to throughout the course of the trust? Or? It, it can be anybody. Um, yes, there are institutional trustees who will play this role of a trust protector, but really it can be anybody. It can be a, a lawyer. It can be somebody whose judgment you respect in your family, a CPA. Hmm. Um, anybody that, that you have respect for, they don't have to be a financial or legal professional even. Uh, but it's somebody who is going to be young enough to where they're likely to be around. Uh, now, if this person passes away and there's not a successor, it doesn't mean anything falls apart. This person doesn't have a daily job. They're not like the trustee. But it is great to have them out there. And, yes, could you name a successor trust protector? You could. But, really, the trust protector really is kind of the the ultimate insurance uh, that when things get screwed up that you didn't foresee – when there's a vacancy and you don't know how to fill it, uh, that's when trust protectors can be marvelous in terms of assuring that your plan does what you want it to do because this person is somebody who knows you probably, or if it's an institution, they still know your values and your priorities. Okay, so one of the other big mistakes that people often make is when they have everything put together, they think they've done it all correctly, and but they leave some assets to someone who's a minor. And so maybe they don't look at some of the guardianship things. We all assume that everything's going to be exactly like how it is right now. And yeah. sometimes that doesn't always work. Grandparents notoriously do this. Uh, and 
it's with the best of intentions, right? That that we want to do something for our grandkids. Oh, absolutely. But you you need to think through how you do that. And if you simply name your grandchild and you don't identify who you want to be the guardian for that or the person that might act as a trustee, so to speak, for that, then what all too often happens is maybe there's not a good relationship with the daughter-in-law or son-in-law. Maybe there's been a divorce. The child ends up in that that person's custody, we'll assume. So the person that ends up administering the money, uh, being in charge of the money, so to speak, for the child is actually somebody that you wouldn't have wanted. So it's not enough for you to simply identify your child, your grandchild, for example, as the beneficiary of your assets. You've got to go a step further and identify who it is that you want to be acting as the the guardian, essentially, or the uh, 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 trustee. And when you use the word trustee, it does imply that you have a trust in place. But if you simply name someone who would be the custodian, then that communicates your intention to the court, um, and it would probably be controlled by the Uniform Gift of Minors Act. Uh, so in the worst-case scenario, at least you have the person controlling it up until the child is age 21. Uh, but after that, incidentally, things would empty into their hands. So I would argue that you should think about calling for a trust to be created in your will if you don't have one during your lifetime. And if you create one during your lifetime, then it just continues in effect. And whoever you've named as your trustee, you've solved your problem because that trustee is the one who continues to manage all the things, including the grandkids' uh, assets. So that's a marvelous solution. But those of you who haven't done that, who have a will, and, and you think that you've provided for your grandkids, you probably should, should just state in there that you want a trust to be created for their benefit. And then if you want to add a few more sentences, uh, the law does not require a whole lot of precision in stating in your will that you want a trust to be created for the benefit of someone you care about. Hmm. Uh, but you have to give enough language to where the court knows generally what you want. And that language is pretty skeletal. By that I mean you name your trustee, you name your beneficiary, you name its purpose, like to hold and to use for the child until the child is age 30 or 35 or whatever language you want to use. It doesn't require much more than that for the judge to have uh, what it needs in a probate estate to create that trust, to declare it in effect, and to appoint that person in charge. So you could conceivably say, let's say I have a child, let's say I have a son, I have a son, and I'm worried that he and his wife are going to split up, but I want to give the gift to my grandchild. So I could name my son as someone like specifically state that my son would be the one in charge of administering that for the grandchild for the benefit of the you grandchild. You could. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. You could so, name him essentially as a trustee for this trust. So that might be a way to avoid potential conflict in the event of the unknown or the un the unforeseen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that's very important to think about. I mean, it is a world where we do have significant divorce rates and and maybe it's not a divorce, but you just think you know, you kind of know your, your son or your, your daughter-in-law, and you kind of feel that maybe they don't have the best judgment about what, for you, may be a significant gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, this could be 100000 bucks, and you're a little uneasy with that, so um, you might risk offending them, of course. I, I'll let you figure out how to deal with that. <laughs> but, but, in, but you certainly can name someone who would be in charge of that. And, and what I'm talking about when I mention a trust is this is a trust that comes into existence in your will. So it does mean 
as we've talked about here many times before, when you do have stuff in a will, it goes through probate. And that includes even when you're creating a trust in the will. Uh-huh. Now, it's, it's not all bad in the sense that at least you get the trust created. Now, those of you, though, who are thinking, wait, I thought if there's a trust involved, there's no probate. That's true if you create the trust now <laughs> while you're alive. Yeah, that trust will pass things along, and they don't go through probate. So don't be confused when I state that you can put in your will that, that you want this trust created. You're just kind of pushing off the creation of the trust till later, but it does happen through probate. Okay, so let's let's look at another mistake that can often be made or something that we, we need to think about is often what happens in as we age is a spouse dies. Well, you're kind of lonely, you meet someone else and you decide, okay, I kind of like to hang out with this person a little bit more. And so then you look at perhaps another marriage or you look at prenuptial agreements or you look at just having a really good friend that you do things with. What are some of those mistakes that we should avoid when we're in that situation? So we're talking about then uh, probably people who have been previously married, uh, their spouse has probably died. Could have mm-hmm. been a divorce. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are divorcing now in, in bigger numbers after age uh, 55, according to this study, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A recent read, recently read. Yeah, we actually talked about that a little bit. Yeah, so it could be a divorce, but more likely it's that the spouse has passed away, maybe a spouse of many years. So, so this person meets someone else, maybe through church, maybe through the community center, whatever it might be. They meet somebody else, and they're not sure how to proceed. They like this person, but they go down the list of options and and they they wonder what is the the right and the wise thing. They have children to consider. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their financial issues and probably legal grandchildren issues. too. Even yeah, grandchildren too. And uh, they have to think about those relationships. They have to think about the financial and legal consequences to their estate if they marry. I mean, when you marry someone. Clearly, that's going to give them certain rights to property. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have a forced share, as it's called, in the event of your death to at least a third of your estate or more. Um, so this can be disruptive to families, and maybe you're not quite that confident. I mean, after all, let's assume you're in your 70s, so this person you've met, you like, you care for, maybe you've fallen in love, but still you have some reservations. And and uh, I think that often we're we're more cautious when we're when we're seventy versus when we're twenty. Oh, probably <laughs> not even no doubt. A lot of experience <laughs> there. So um, so you consider the range of options. One is you can live with this person outside marriage. For many of us, that wouldn't be acceptable. Uh, but I'll put it out there. Uh, there's there's the option of marrying. Uh, marrying, of course, means thinking through uh, how you will deal with these issues I just mentioned. Um, and there is the option of having a prenup mm-hmm. or even a postnup, but we'll assume a prenuptial agreement. Uh, and a prenuptial agreement can be effective to waive rights if it's done correctly. Now, that has to be handled very carefully. Mm-hmm. You want to go to a lawyer if you decide to create a prenup in this older scenario you want to go to a lawyer who's familiar with that area of the law. Uh, it, the the formalities, or rather the manner in which it's executed, the disclosure requirements, 
uh, you want to be sure you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's to be sure that that holds up at the time that it's called upon. Hmm. If it's ever called upon, you want to be sure that, that it does what it does. And, and interestingly, these agreements don't have to deal primarily with divorce. Uh, many people think of a prenup as something that is intended to, to answer questions relating to divorce. But often... Its purpose is not that the parties expect divorce. If they're marrying later in life, they may be thinking that divorce is less likely, Mm -hmm. and they're thinking that what is more imminent is that perhaps somebody's going to pass away, and what about protecting their kids and their grandkids? Well, let me give you a perfect example. I actually had a family member who married at 72, a man who was 75, and so that's not exactly spring chicken, but he owned a family farm and had had land in his family and it was actually the livelihood of all of his kids and grandkids and so they did create a prenuptial agreement specifically to address the farm um, because both he and his kids especially were concerned um, him marrying someone who they didn't really know very well and uh, met online, and so um, they created that in order to protect the family farm and their own livelihood. And it worked out to be fine, but he passed away before she did, and there you have it. It it was definitely called upon. Yeah, and those are the statistics, incidentally. He was likely to pass away before she, and um, and that's an example, and I know of others, too, where, where these marriages have worked out wonderfully. I know of one in my family that's fairly recent. Um, where um, I don't think there was a prenup, and uh, and the kids really liked this this man, uh, this older man, and 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 the our family members older, um, and the marriage was just in the last couple months. Hmm. So um, we have all indications that this is going to be a marvelous relationship that will last some time. But for whatever reason, I think the parties in this case decided to not do that sort of planning. Uh, it's a little bit risky, mm-hmm. uh, but that was, I think, an informed decision they made, meaning they considered, you know, what are the implications and decided to go forward as is. So um, now I do think, though, that there is another option that's worth mentioning. And this is an option, incidentally, that was in the Wall Street Journal in an article just two days ago. And it was, I think the name of the article was Staying Together by Living Apart. Interesting. Yeah, so with a title like that, I had to read the article. And and it talked about this very common phenomenon with which many of you may be familiar where a couple meets each other, kind of like we've described. Uh, maybe it's a widow scenario, a widow-widower scenario. And um, they decide that they want to have a long-term relationship. They want to spend their days together and maybe part of their nights, their evenings. But they decide to keep their houses and they decide to go home to their houses each night. And and it's not a product of thinking about the lawyers or thinking about the assets. Um, this article really focused on the fact that, yeah, that does complicate things if they were to marry, for example. Mm-hmm. But even living together was not an option for these people for more than, than spiritual or religious reasons. Uh, these people have have lives that they've become accustomed to. They have sleep patterns. Mm-hmm. They have uh, their own eccentricities, and they kind of like living alone. They've become used to it uh, since the death of their spouse, and so they make the decision that they are going to continue seeing each other and spending their days together, doing things together, 
But, you know, when it comes time to go to bed, they each go to their home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of made sense to me in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that it is possible to have an intimate, close relationship and still not live in the same house. So that this article was dedicated to talking about how common this phenomenon is. So they have the companionship. They have the friendship. I mean, certainly as we age and if you're used to having a spouse and kids around and suddenly have no one around, then you certainly want friendship and companionship. And this provides that. And, you know, one could even argue that a relationship might have a better shot at surviving. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you don't stay together, I mean, when you compress people into a household and and the joint legal and financial responsibilities that go with that, it is asking uh, a lot for that marriage to survive. And and I think it is a miraculous thing that marriage is a wonderful institution and it has done as well as it has, uh, despite a a divorce rate in the U.S. Um, so so we we're kind of throwing that out there, I guess, as as something to think about as you age is to to be aware that if you decide to marry, you do need to think through these legal and financial matters. They Mm -hmm. can be addressed. They can be addressed by a prenuptial agreement, as we discussed, um, that maybe you'll make an informed decision to assume certain risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of you may decide to not marry in that last scenario we just described. So uh, it just... As you consider these possibilities, don't fail to consider the legal and financial implications of whatever you do. Well, and another that kind of leads us into another mistake that people make is that sometimes what they do is they don't consider those legal and financial responsibilities and they put everything in one person's name. And so sometimes there's a little bit of an imbalance between who owns what and how that affects your your estate planning. Yeah, used to this was a, a bigger issue when they were doing uh, when the tax law is very different. You had a lower exemption. You had like an exemption of one million dollars, believe it. In the year, uh, but when the law was originally changed in two thousand, uh, it was a million dollar or so exemption, and I think two million for a couple, which is amazing now because that would pick up a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some of our listeners. Mm-hmm. But now that's gone way up. As a matter of fact, for a couple now, it's above $22 million and above $11 million for a single individual that's going to be exempt from federal tax. Wow. Yeah. Is, was that with the Trump changes? Uh, well, some of those that? preceded him. But, yeah, okay. some occurred during his administration. So um, my, my point is that now the, the considerations are less tax-driven for most people, and I like that. I never really liked having to be – a tax lawyer to do planning for my clients because I always thought of estate planning as talking about those even more fundamental things than than federal taxation. Those things about what your values are, the people you love, and planning for their care and anticipating their needs and your needs. So um, now I can say that to the extent that, that you're going to think about your planning, you do want to consider the way assets are titled in part because that means that you control more what will pass through a will or a trust. Now, if you put everything in a trust, this is less of an issue because the, the titling has fixed itself. You've already, anything you put in the trust, then it's going to be in the name of the trust. It won't be in joint names. Mm. But but I know many of you do not have trusts. Or if you do, you you've have a trust that's been created in your will. It's called a testamentary trust. So in those cases, 
you may want to think about how you want assets titled so that some things you might want to pass through the death of the first person to go to particular people. But if you have standard titling of assets in the state of Missouri, it's joint tenancy with right of survivorship. Mm -hmm. Uh, What that means is that the parties, uh, the first one pass, that asset will be automatically in the name of the survivor. Well, this is good news for some of you. Some of you are thinking, oh, if my husband or my wife dies, uh, I know that I'm going to have to go and deal with probate court because I have this will. Well, interestingly, interestingly enough, you might find that when your spouse dies, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to probate. Um, remember, you only probate whenever there's a title on something that has to be changed. Mm. In other words, it's not the only reason you probate. But for many people, that's the reason you go to probate when a loved one dies. Mm-hmm. For a creditor, they go to probate to get paid. Right. Uh, but but if, if you're the, the surviving spouse then then and you have assets that are in joint names so that it's it's joint tenancy with right of survivorship, then under those circumstances, the first one that dies, that that titling has been taken care of. Now, what you would do is get a death certificate. Mm-hmm. You would file it with the recorder of deeds. So that means that anyone doing a property search, when you pass away, they go through the, the, the courthouse records regarding chain of title on real estate, and, and that question that would otherwise be dangling, one in which it showed both parties being the last owners, husband and wife, and maybe you're trying to sell the property now, so mm-hmm. there would be one signature. Or if if you're uh, if somebody is buying the property from you, they're going to be concerned that it when they look at the real estate records, hey, I need two signatures here, mm-hmm. and in, in order for me to have good title. So this is an example where there's a break in the chain of title that is fixed by getting a certif- a death certificate that's filed with the quarter of deeds, and now that gap is filled. So when it showed that, that, that the house in which your parents lived for many years, for example, both of them show on the deed, and now one's passed away, and now the house is being sold. So once you, you fill in that gap and show the, the, the certificate of death, then it explains why you now alone can sign that deed to transfer that property. So my point is that can apply to any assets. It can apply to your bank account, your brokerage accounts, anything that has a document of title, uh, insurance, you know, beneficiary clauses. Mm-hmm. What about your 401ks? Any of those assets that are out there that have a document of title, pretty much anything that has a says who owns it on a piece of paper. That wouldn't include the personal property, your lawnmower, for example. <laughs> but but all those more valuable a assets. A car, though. Yeah, a car. It would, it would, a car. Right, a car, a boat. Yeah. So all those things, if you have a beneficiary provision or jointly titled, then then those things will not have to be probated. Well, and it's one of those things that we all assume takes place, but unless it's done correctly and set up correctly and you dot your I's and cross your T's and file the paperwork, it's not really going to be that way. I mean, we assume that when your husband dies, okay, the house is going to be mining. But if you haven't set it up correctly, it's not. And so that's one of our next mistakes that people do is they don't have what we call a residuary clause. So they forget to do something. And so what does that protect us from? Well, the residuary clause is just the place where anything that is not a specific bequest, that you've not specifically given to someone, that goes in what's called the residuary of the of the will. So it means anything that's left, who gets that? So theoretically, you could have just a residuary clause. I mean, what if you had um, a will in which you didn't identify anything going specifically to particular people, and your will said, I hereby give... 
one third of my assets to each of my three children. Mm-hmm. That's all you say, essentially. Well, that's a residuary clause. It means that there were no specific gifts, so everything goes down in this pot, and it says take one-third of the pot and give it to A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. So some people, incidentally, do not have a residuary clause. In other words, they give out specific things, and they think, oh, I need to name everything specifically. So they don't have a provision, a general provision like I just described. Now, What's interesting about residuary provisions, if you're the residuary person on a will, uh, I've had that be a wonderful thing, and I've had it to be uh, a very disappointing thing. (laughs) In other words, sometimes the residuary is where all the action is, Mm -hmm. like in my example. And other times, and and another example might be, well, I give my my trophies, you know, from my uh, successful career to so-and-so. I give my jewelry to my wife and everything else I give to my child, Tim. So that's an example where all the action is in the residuary. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few small things given away. But th- but there are other people, though, who are very methodical about naming, you know, you get this, my other son gets this, and they specifically try to hand out items that they identify. So to the extent they're successful, the residuary clause, which they still need to have, mm-hmm. uh, the residuary clause is not very interesting. So if you're the person who's named last and says, anything else that's left, I give to my son, Mark. Well, in, sometimes Mark is very disappointed. <laughs> Mark gets the old sneakers from the closet. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so the, the residuary can be relatively unimportant or it can be hugely important, depending on the way the asset's given. But my point is, and I think the, the answer to the to the issue you raised, Susan, is that you always want to have a residuary clause because never be so confident that you've named everything. There could be stuff that's come along, inheritances even, that you were entitled to you didn't know about. It, it, you must include a residuary clause or you have a big gap in your will that could mean that those assets pass by intestate succession. In other words, by the general law of the state. Well, you just answered my question. I was going to say, so if you, if you actually name anything and offer this particular, my jewelry, I want my jewelry to go to my daughter because my son wouldn't want it anywhere. The minute I do that, I've got to make sure I have that residuary clause in there. Yeah, you still do because you always have to assume there's stuff you've not identified. Right. right. Okay, so one of our next mistakes. Wait, uh, why don't we take a quick break here? Oh, good idea. How much longer do we have? We have about 14, 15 minutes. Good. Back in a second. You're listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors. Presented by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. And now, attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Well, we're back with Elder Talk. Let's continue with our list of mistakes people commonly make when they're doing their estate planning or end-of-life planning. And this one relates to, many of you have heard of advanced directives. Mm -hmm. You've been presented with forms at hospitals. And all too often, people assume that if they have checked a few boxes and signed this form, that they're good, that they've planned for their end-of-life decision-making. Well, okay, so let me just give you a couple of examples. One is I know for sure, no matter how old you are, when you're in the hospital, they're going to come and they're going to ask you about those forms. I mean, they're trying to help you. They want to make sure that in the event that something tragic happens that you're covered. So I don't fault hospitals for that. And 
in my opinion, probably like most everybody else as well, it's better than nothing is the thought. Well, so we have an ex another example in our family where um, someone soon to be part of our family is his dad had a heart attack or something happened and he fell and hit his head. So he is now in the hospital. Um, all he has in his advanced directive is no long-term feeding tube. So now, but he's in the hospital in a comatose state? He's been in on a breathing treatment and they have said that there's no brain activity. And so they were able to remove the respirator and he was able to breathe on his own, but they're in this position where he's probably not going to be able to feed himself, um, probably not going to be able to make any decisions, going to need long-term care, and not an old man. Not certainly, I mean, mid fifties. So wow. not an old man, but when he fell, head his head, brains, brain swelling, all kinds of things. And so I'm looking at this going, gosh, this is a really hard decision and a hard place for the, for his kids to be in. Yeah. In part because he's breathing on his own. Right. Right. And so really there's that one little piece of an advanced directive that was filled out at some point. I don't know well enough to know to know when but it you see how it happens and this is the type of thing it's gut-wrenching to watch it's very difficult for the remaining family and a few steps along the way with a little bit of planning could have really gotten his wishes carried out whatever they may be so this is probably the standard form that has a few boxes mm -hmm. and you check do you want discontinue discontinuation of artificial life support in the form of um, a breathing machine, for example, or breathing apparatus. Mm -hmm. uh, it will generally have a question about CPR. It'll have a question about artificial nutrition and hydration, right? which is the issue here. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's not much more directive in terms of what really are the thoughts and values and desires of this person. Right. And I've found that, that often... People tend to think that, well, my kids will know. I, I was just going to say, I think that's the general thought is, well, they'll know. But how are they going to know if, they, if you've never taken the time to sit and talk about it? Yeah, it's a sensitive subject, and it's not something that people generally do talk about. So to impute you know, your, to your kids this knowledge about what you would do for yourself in that situation is really asking too much. And then you throw in the inhibitions, mm -hmm. you know, the emotions that are involved. Um, it's just really asking for a situation where the child is either going to not act when they should mm -hmm. or they're going to act and feel guilty about it mm -hmm. for the next for the rest of their lives, perhaps. Which is really what you are really are trying to avoid. I mean, most of us, I, I would never want my kids to have to make that decision for me. I mean, okay. I think they love me, you know, uh, they, they love their mom, but to decide, okay, if I do this, I know that her death is going to be the result. That's yeah. a hard place to be. I mean, who wants to make that decision? And especially if I haven't taken the time to talk with them about it, because you like to hold on to hope, maybe they'll get better. Maybe the doctors are wrong. Maybe things will improve. Hey, that's a hard and, call. And meanwhile, incidentally, from a more, self-serving perspective you may be suffering mm -hmm. and and your kids keep you in this condition i mean often it's somebody who is not virtually comatose mm -hmm. there's somebody who may be disoriented often much later in life where there's no real hope of recovery 
and there are these other medical problems. So there could be actual suffering, mm-hmm. even though they're giving pain medication, et cetera. Uh, it could be a very miserable situation for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's not enough to simply have a form that a hospital's lawyers have prepared for you. Incidentally, you're not the client. So they weren't thinking primarily about you. I'm a little more cynical on this, Susan. <laughs> I think that these forms exist for a reason, and, and they reduce the probability that hospitals will be liable in mm-hmm. this situation. So I suggest that you not have your legal documents prepared by the opposing party, so to speak, by someone else's lawyer. That instead, that you, you be sure that, that a document of this sensitivity that has such far-reaching effects that it be more than this form that you have torn off of a pad and checked a few boxes. There needs to be more information, and you can make it as specific as you want. And one other point that I would make is that if you are concerned about pushing this or placing this on the shoulders of those you love, maybe you think that your children, who most likely would be the decision makers, maybe you think that they can't be counted on to you know, to, to shoulder well this responsibility, in part because maybe they care for you so much, then remember there is an option to have what's called a living will. Now, many people have both. They'll have a living will in which you declare to the world, this is what I want to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not electing or choosing someone to say, you know, you have to decide what to do in this situation. That's more a durable power of attorney for health care. A durable power of attorney for health care is a marvelous thing. It does allow a person that whose judgment you respect, et cetera, in, in many situations, that's the ideal to make that decision. Mm-hmm. So you know it's somebody who gets it and who knows what you would care about, and they're going to make the call. But in the situation where you don't have that and you don't feel good about having somebody in your family shouldered with that, then an alternative would be to simply do the living will rather than do both, as Mm -hmm. many people commonly do. And the living will is, again, it's a statement to the world. Anybody can implement it. Now, there may be some gray areas, meaning there always or often are whenever you're in this situation. Some people might think that, you know, the the things you've described there, there may be an argument, you know, is this met or is it not met yet? Or Mm -hmm. um, there there are those those issues around the boundaries of of your wishes. But for the most part, it's a much more likely scenario that, uh, to the extent you've been explicit, that the hospital can implement that decision because you've made clear to the world these are my criteria. So as long as it's not very gray, then I think you've, you've placed someone in a position to objectively implement your plan. And so what would be some of the main differences between this, just this form that we fill out, other than is it just being able to say, okay, I want this, but don't want this? I mean, what would be some of those very specific things? Well, imagine how beneficial it would be to have prose. By prose, I mean sentences rather than than a phrase that is four or five technical words, uh, such as uh, artificial nutrition hydration. Um, cardiopulmonary mm-hmm. resuscitation. I mean, those are multi-syllable words that don't communicate a lot of detail about when you want it used and when you don't. And it's difficult to to make that point without 
without using language. And language means often the ability to write a paragraph. So, for example, you might have something in there where I would like artificial nutrition if there is the chance that I will get better. If there is not, then maybe I don't. I mean, would that be as specific as you could be? That's an example. It's a good example. So just imagine how helpful you could be if you had written a couple of paragraphs that constituted your durable power of attorney um, or your living will in which you talk about, as you might imagine, think about wills. Sometimes wills are not these, these clinical, sterile, formal documents. Sometimes many of you are familiar with wills, maybe in your family where someone's taking the opportunity to talk about why they're doing what they're doing and wishing the best, etc. So that concept can apply to a living will. And it can apply to a durable power of attorney where you, you speak frankly about this is, this is the situation I don't want. I don't want to end up in a situation, for example, uh, whatever happens, I don't want to be in a position where I'm having to live with pain unnecessarily or great discomfort when there's no reasonable hope of recovery. You know, I want my loved ones to feel comfortable sending me on. Uh, it's what I want. You, you can express it in the ways that you choose. And we all would express these things a little differently, but it could embolden the person with the durable power of attorney, somebody who knows you mm-hmm. well, probably at one of your children. It could embolden them and give them the confidence to know that what they're doing in that situation is definitely the right situation. That could serve you and them, incidentally. That helps alleviate a lot of guilt. It does. I, I think that that would be one of the biggest reasons. So let's say that we've already done this. So let's say we go ahead and we get we cross our eyes, we do everything that we need to do. It seems to me the last thing we've got to do is we've got to get it communicated somehow to our family members that I have this document in place. Yeah, and, and that uh, often a copy will be given to, to someone, maybe an original even, to the person who is listed first. Now, remember, you probably would name a successor. Sometimes people will name a group, such as three family members, hmm. and, and they will collectively make decisions. Now, You want to have an odd number to the extent there's a vote involved, and you want to be careful about unanimous requirements because that means maybe nothing gets done. And now in some cases that's what you want is Mm -hmm. unless it's unanimous you want nothing done. But I don't think that applies to this situation. In this situation you could very well be in in a miserable state and have nothing done because of the guilt of one person or the hesitation or doubt. So I think that uh, you want to choose successors but choose them well and give them sufficient explanation in the document that you hand them uh, for them to act. And in, in this document in particular, I think it needs to be handy. Sometimes people will choose to put a will in a safe deposit box and disclose that it exists, and mm-hmm. that's not a bad idea. Banks are good about retrieving those things uh, or leaving it with a law firm. That's not a bad idea either, or putting it in a place where you know it, where you've informed others this is where it is in mm-hmm. your home so you know it's going to be found. Um, but this document, because it's intended to allow someone to kind of come to your rescue maybe on short notice, whether it's a durable power of attorney for health care or especially a durable power of attorney, which would mean to not just health care but those other things like financial and legal, those are things that sometimes arise on short notice and sometimes decisions have to be made on short notice. Sometimes those preliminary decisions after an automobile accident or a stroke in a mm-hmm. hospital can can sometimes put in place a, a, a situation that is difficult to undo in short term. Now, is, would this be something that you could give a copy of 
you, this to your physician? Would a physician ever have that as part of your medical records? You could. The, the living will, mm -hmm. the living will particularly, you would want people to know that the durable power of attorney exists. But, but the main thing is to, is to have it in the hands of the person that you've identified, that you've entrusted with making these decisions. They're the ones who you want to be notified. But a living will, it's true. It, it's, an, it's something that is a declaration to the world. It's not a bad idea for that should be in your hospital records, a copy of it. Uh, so these are all things that it's too easy to push off, and then suddenly it becomes a crisis. And guess what? You can't be any help at that moment. Right. At the moment that it's, that it's the greatest crisis, and incidentally, you have more interest in this outcome than arguably anybody, and yet you're powerless at this moment. Mm-hmm just powerless. So now's the time to put in place these sorts of documents, these end-of-life decision-making documents. Are we out of time? We're out of time. What time flies? Well, we'll be back next week with another episode of Elder Talk. Till then, take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.